Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing today? I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Hope everyone is having a great day. So apparently value investing still works. Okay. The other day I tweeted this out, maybe it was this last Thursday or Friday you had sent to me over Skype yes. that State Farm was going to acquire Gainsco for approximately $400 million in cash, which was about three times the current market price it had been trading at in the market. And consistently trading at. It, yes. It hadn't gone up a lot or down a lot, if I remember right. Um, uh, yeah. So it you've been, done some work on Gainsco. I wrote it up for Focus Combining. So you people can go to Oddball Stocks. Um, at, just to f- see more information on that. And uh, it's basically from the press release. So it doesn't really have a lot more than that, but it gives a little commentary on it with the press release. That's probably the easiest way to do it instead of having to go through the whole press release. Um, I love this this last line. Go figure. You would have almost tripled your money buying the minimum limits car insurer with its own race car yes. at a price to book of 1.7 times, 1.77 times and a return of equity of 14%. Maybe the clue was the aggressive share repurchase. Yeah, I actually... Investing is hard. I'm sort of maybe more optimistic on Gainsco than, um, or more interested in stuff than Nate was at Oddball Stocks. Because, see, why I think maybe it's not Nate's kind of insurance company is that it was trading at a premium to book and stuff, which is more my kind of insurance company like. I mean, I would rather get them at a, pre- at a discount to book, but people know that in terms of banks and insurers, I like ones I think are going to create value through some sort of... Um, cost advantage or something that they have there and a minimum limits insurer. So what this does is to a significant extent, it just gives the insurance, Texas is a very big state for them. It's not their only one um, that it just provides the minimum level insurance that you need to be able to drive a car basically in the state. So it has to do with um, the legal requirements that you have and the legal requirements can be quite low in some states, including in Texas. They're pretty low, Mm -hmm. although not the lowest. State Farm is here. They have a massive campus not too far from where we're recording this right mm-hmm. now gains co is in fort worth is that where their headquarters are no it's in dallas, dallas. It's it's dallas. dallas yeah. yeah not far at all so that didn't surprise me if i if anyone were to acquire them i was like i guess it and, probably and makes I'm, sense to me clients are here shareholders in this we mentioned before yep. i think are involved with texas capital bank uh i believe so and also some of them are i think they're connected and stuff but and also involved in real estate i believe them more so in fort worth than dallas but mm-hmm. maybe both um yeah and so I talked about the company. Uh, I found it very, let's see, I found it very interesting, but decided not to buy it mainly because we, of management. So we could get into that, but we were never able to talk to management. We tried. And this is a very illiquid stock. So I gave it a 50% interest and said I would revisit it at $24 a share. Um, because of the way management ran it. So management kept recapitalizing it by buying back the stock in big ways, which certainly increases their stake in it and all of that. And um, they kept it at a fairly low capitalization position. So it's like B plus rated um, by AM Best. And some of its competitors would be rated higher than that. I didn't see the reason of why not to allow more capital build up in the business. Um, 
And that was interesting to me. Why were they doing that? They paid some, you know, um, out of capital over time. So I, I was just curious about why they would run it that in that sort of way. Also, they owned a bond that concerned me. Um, they actually had bought a bond in another sub uh, non-standard auto insurer. So I that was just one of the signs of things because so they have public filings and things. This company's dark, dark officially, yeah. but there's no such thing as a dark insurer because you can find their regulatory filings. And this company actually puts it out on their website anyway. But even if they didn't have it on their website, you could find it. So there's no such thing as a dark insurer, dark bank because you can find the regulatory filings. Now sometimes you can't be 100 percent sure that their regulatory filings are consistent with um, the entire company that you're seeing on a gap basis, but they put both up there. Their gap um, numbers are there. So. This company changed dramatically. Um, the do you have the combined ratio that you can show them yeah, from absolutely. there? Yeah. So the thing that interested me is there was a huge shift in the last five or six years or whatever, uh, especially, but but even before then, that this company had a very bad underwriting history going back to the early two thousands. Terrible combined ratio. Combined ratio under hundred means that you're making a profit before your investments. A combined ratio over hundred means you're losing money before your investments. Obviously, they became severely undercapitalized and in deep trouble in the early 2000s and mm -hmm. they needed a rescue basically and stuff what happened you know. what was like did you look into why that was yes so they wrote other lines of business so that's one of the most important ones which they got rid of so that was key and then also limiting it to certain states and stuff that were maybe better states and that's usually how insurers that's mm -hmm. usually the success thing for an insurer if they're having problems and stuff get out of certain states and get out, especially out of certain lines of business and uh, that's what they did. And they focused in on basically one type of business and a lot of it in like three or four states or something. Um, Texas, South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia, right? I also believe that they focus more on Spanish-speaking drivers. They don't specifically say that, but I think there's lots of evidence that they do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, retention rates, right? They had low retention rates. You Very bad about retention that. rates. That's because people are failing to pay. Um, and so what's happening is that the payments are bouncing and stuff. So they're giving them like a, a direct debit or something or whatever. And then they go to use the, the, um, uh, to pull money from the bank account or something. And it's not there, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But the things that were dramatic about them is the last three years. So I talked a little bit about that. If things are as good as the last three years have been for this company, then it's an amazing insurance company. So um, combined ratio was 97, 2016, 94, 2017, 94, 2018. That's good for an auto insurer. Mm -hmm. Return on equity, 13%, 17%, 22%. That's good. But the amazing thing That's is premium growth of 9%, 16%, and 19% while achieving those kinds of numbers. Yeah, so, it's, so it's, they're growing and they're getting more profitable. Yes, and then you saw dividends per share, 250, 152 uh, so in other words, the average over three years was $2. This is another one that's interesting because this company needs to pay them out of special dividends. So I think that people overlooked the f investors overlooked the dividend mm -hmm. because it was a special dividend each year. It wasn't declared as a regular dividend and this was a dark stock officially and it wasn't listed. So all those things can combine to cause a problem because you don't see that in reality it had about a five to 8% dividend yield. Mm -hmm. If people had seen that, I think they would have liked a lot better and insure with a five to eight percent dividend yield is pretty attractive. But instead, they because it was regular, it weren't they weren't regular dividends. I think that people may have overlooked it. But this also concerned me about the company, about why I wanted to learn more about management and stuff, because I knew that some major shareholders had a background in like um, real estate transactions and things which would be leveraged. They had a background in a bank, which is kind of a pretty leveraged bank, and. Um, 
they were paying out special dividends all the time and sometimes buying back stock in a dark stock where it was hard to buy back stock, um, despite the fact that they were not like an A minus or better rated insurer. So they were staying at a level of capitalization, which is pretty aggressive. And that got them great returns over time. And obviously great returns when they sold out to State Farm. But I wondered why they were doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had a, a P of eight times. You know, so I mean, yep. it's just interesting. Of course, you could say, oh, survivorship bias or small sample size, but about, you know, value stocks always trading. You know, I guess the dispersion between a private market value versus like in the market and, and the discrepancy they can have. Yeah, I think a really big factor though is they trade above book. In my experience talking to value investors, people who focus on illiquid stocks and stuff, they're really focused on book value when it comes to insurers and banks. And so I think insurers and banks that trade below book often get pushed up a bit towards it, regardless of the business quality and stuff. Mm -hmm. But small, dark, et cetera, um, financial companies, as they trade above premiums to book, people don't want to buy them. Whereas with very big companies, they don't care about book value. They just care about PE. Mm -hmm. So at some point, like um, if JP Morgan or Bank of America or Progressive or whatever trades at a very big premium to book, but justifies it with a low PE all the time, they're comfortable with that or low or high dividend yield. Right. But in my experience, when it comes to these really small insurers, um, small stocks, illiquid stocks, they want price to book. The only people who are interested in them usually are value investors, like microcap value investors. They don't have a lot of like growth investors or quality seeking investors who seek them out. Um, whereas obviously, this is a very different part of the insurance industry. So, for instance, they grew between 10 to 20% a year basically over the last three years, premium growth, while having a PE below 10. Mm -hmm. Right. So at what point does that become a trend in your mind? Well, this trend was pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, well, I get that from like 2011. It, it well, no, I mean, if you look after 2006, uh -huh. um, from 2007 to 2018, there was one year that I ignored because there's some issues with it. But if we put that year out, they hit a combined ratio of 100% one year and 103% another year. In all other years, their combined ratio was between 94 and 99%. What? is the combined ratios of the best insurance companies? Uh, well, best non-standard auto, this is good. Yeah. It's not the best. Mm -hmm. It's good. I believe that progressive non-standard business is probably better than this sometimes. Uh, if we go into other kinds of industries, uh, I mean, other kinds of lines of business that you can write, then they're way below that. They, mm -hmm. They're ones in the 80s consistently at times. Like bank insurance or something that I bought in has lower than that. I mean, 94, I think, was its median over oh, wow. 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, 92 is its median. Wow. So, um, yeah. But they don't write as much business per... Um, they don't write as many dollars of premiums per dollar of book value or surplus, whatever you want to call it. We talked a little bit about that. The amount of leverage is the amount of underwriting leverage that they use. And um, if you look, that's kind of an advantage in terms of auto because you can... Um, that you can sometimes write at pretty high levels to grow pretty fast. So the difference would be that although their combined ratio is better in some industries, it's such a niche industry that doesn't mm -hmm. grow as fast. Yeah. Um, they don't have a huge market share. I, I looked up their market share, for instance. You can see how many policies there are with the state of Texas. Um, so I looked up how many policies they have versus how many policies everyone else has. You have to look this up under their insurance subsidiary, and that'll always be the case. So this one was MGA is what they used. Got it. And you even said right here, you said, nonetheless, if you had complete faith that Gains Co. future performance will match its performance these last three years, you should stop reading this article and just go out and buy the stock now. Yes. But then I said, I have doubts. Mm -hmm. So here are my doubts. I said, it's an insurer. The business is very, very cyclical. Um, 
were looking at the lowest combined ratio the company had ever achieved in 2017, mm. 2018. These are all warnings for State Farm to keep in mind, too. Um, <laughs> Maybe they're listening. But, uh, but State Farm has a lot of experience and a lot of stuff that they would be able to bring to this. So uh, State Farm probably bought this because they're able to, through their distribution, grow it dramatically. So, it, you know, it's they see this as like a platform kind of thing, mm-hmm. would be my expectation. This is such a small company relative to how State Farm could get them out there. I'm just surprised, like, why didn't they just do it themselves? You know, if you said they don't have a lot of, you know, policies written... Why didn't they just, I mean, they have such a better distribution base. Why wouldn't they go and do it themselves? Well, that's an interesting question. Because it's yeah. such a small company. So one, I don't know how many, how much overlap there is between State Farm type customers and um, Gainsco. That's what I'm saying. It seems like a, a different market, uh, but I get what you're saying. Right, but yeah. then you have to be careful mm-hmm. because the, the risk profile is completely different. So there's two differences. One, distribution is completely different. Like Nate was kind of um, making fun of the car, but there's a reason for the car. So the, the, they have a race car and stuff uh-huh. because you're trying to attract certain kinds of drivers, which are not the, the safest drivers. Gainsco's business is attracting drivers who aren't very safe. <laughs> so having a race car and things like that is a pretty good way of marketing for That's that. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, their business is non-standard. You know, not non-standard. It's beyond non-standard. Their business is people who only want to pay the minimum amount of insurance that you need to meet the legal requirements in the state and then on top of that if i remember from their 10k now their 10k was a long time ago this is when they weren't uh, so once they became a uh, dark company a non-sec filing company they didn't give details on that but i have somewhere in here um a guess about what their retention rate was historically um so and then we also i also have information about how long tail it is and things like that so um the uh i Anyway, the, the looking back at their old 10K, you could find out that they had very low retention rates. And that's significant because the retention rate has a lot to do with the expense ratios and stuff, which we've talked about before. Yeah, how much is the retention rate? Uh, I don't know if you give an actual. Let's see. Yeah, Premium so low. their expense ratio is low. It, it tended to be low in bad years, as I explained there, in high and good years. Um, you just said that it's likely very low. Yeah. So if you look at their old 10K since before they went private. Is that the nature of this business though? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because the people, so the people, they sign up for it because they need it legally. Mm -hmm. And then they maybe had no intention of ever paying for it or they can't pay for it or they just overlook paying for it. All those are possibilities. And then in cases like this, because they know that they're, um, might be hard to collect over time from these people, um, to get, back into that they would be consistently paying they all the company also may not try as hard to keep the insurance in force and stuff it may be that you end up uninsured very quickly mm-hmm. as opposed to at uh the uh preferred risk kind of thing at like progressive or geico or something the company would probably reach out right away to try to make sure that they don't leave you uninsured at any point in time because they know that once you are paying uh, to give you an i get text messages from geico yeah and like every year i don't even think about it but then mm-hmm. they say you need to renew this policy or whatever they just text it right to me because right. I, don't, I don't even think about it but also are you on a six month or 12 month policy i think it's 12 yeah many of games will be on one month oh wow yeah okay and probably some of them would have to be paying i assume that some of them don't have now i think this changed over time but a long time ago i think that many of them didn't have a bank account that they would have been able to charge that way too and you probably could charge extra fees and things so you mm-hmm. probably could charge a few dollars more for that sure um things like that so it's a very hard group to insure, obviously. 
Um, and then the big thing that concerned me about it, about Gainsco, is the liability stuff, lawsuits, and bad publicity over time. Because a major part of how the company could have a lower combined ratio over time and stuff is to try not to pay insurance. These people will be causing lots of accidents, and um, there'll be lots of complaints compared to other companies, uh, other insurers, about the accidents that they caused and them not paying for them. For instance, if they have any chance to, what I mean by this is, okay, so there's always there's disputes in insurance things when someone has an accident and stuff over who's responsible and whatever can take a long time to be decided between them. But the things that have to be decided are things like, did an insurable event like occur? Was there an actual loss there? Were you actually covered at the time? Things like that besides mm-hmm. just were you responsible? Um, so th- there's many cases in which there can be a dispute once the, once an accident's happened of were you actually insured now for preferred risk, Geico and progressive and state farm, the retention rates are insanely high and stuff. People are always paying for it and everything. There's very little wiggle room about whether you insured or not. It's possible with Gainsco that maybe people have missed a payment at times, uh, that they're did not correctly fill out certain information when they first got the insurance. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, there could be a language thing in some cases. They're also trying to get the minimum amount that required, right? Mm-hmm. And they also just have less value as a customer over time, long term, the lifetime value of the customer. Because if your retention rate's low, then you have a low lifetime value. It's easier to have a low expense ratio, a lot easier, if you retain customers for a really long time. We've talked about this before, but I think the major difference between Progressive and Geico and Geico's expense ratio advantage historically was that they had different customer bases. Mm-hmm. And Progressive was not as successful in like bundling other kinds of insurance and things like that to keep people. They had more single people, more younger people, things like that. The lifetime value for some customers is very, very high. I remember my grandmother was a State Farm policyholder, and she wanted to cancel because she was going to stop driving. Uh-huh. And so she called them up and stuff and she was like, I want to cancel. And you know, and they said, well, can we cut your rate by like 80% or something <laughs> because you've been with us for 60 years. So the lifetime value of a customer who stayed with you for 60 years is very significant versus people who are likely to stay with you for six months or something. Sure. And so it's very different in terms of the expenses. The expenses of acquiring the business in the first place become really significant in this case. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to even figure out how they can have such low expense ratios. Did she cancel this. her policy? Yeah, uh, yeah, she yeah. canceled our policy. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the so like the business is just very different. So there's differences in terms of the sure. risk that you might have. But a huge part of this, of course, is the selection issue. So this is why you want to be somewhat careful with things like Gainsco and stuff. If Gainsco is mainly offering minimum liability stuff. That means that the people who are buying this are making an active choice that they want the lowest amount of insurance possible, um, which is interesting. So why would they want the lowest amount of insurance possible? It's cheapest. Uh, it could be that it's cheapest, mm-hmm. right? That's one possibility. Um, there is another possibility, which seems more likely to me. These people are extremely um, have an extremely high risk tolerance in their life. They're probably dangerous to insure for anything. They'd be dangerous to insure for fire insurance, for medical insurance, for anything. For some reason, because if it's cheaper and stuff, that's fine. There's a large percentage of population that might want that. But there are certainly some people who are pretty poor and yet devote a lot of money to insurance on their car because they want to make sure that they can still get to work and everything if something happens. Mm -hmm. This is a lower rated insurer. 
it probably doesn't have as good customer reviews and things as Geico or Progressive or something like that. Um, and I did look at things like what were the number of complaints that they had versus others. They're in line or better than other non-standard um, insurers. They're much worse than insurers that have a meaningful not non-standard business. So the non-standard business is the part that's really tricky that way. I also looked at all their glass door reviews and things like that. Same thing. Everyone warns you. Like, great company, love the company, whatever. If you haven't worked in non-standard auto insurance before, understand it's what tough business, business you're in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, and there wasn't a lot of detail about it that way. Like I said, it's an A and best rated B plus. Yep. It certainly could have achieved an A minus or something better than that. Um, but chose not to, it chose to pay out and stuff. And that's in line with some other non-standard insurers. Um, and then their bond portfolio. Yeah. So I talked a little bit about their bond portfolio. They invest a lot in bonds, and one of my concerns with their bond portfolio, and of course State Farm doesn't care about this because now State Farm is going to take over their insurance, Mm -hmm. uh, their investment operations. But um, they were basically reaching for yield because they needed, they probably were saying, okay, we need a 3% yield. So to do that, and I don't want to take on interest rate risk, which I agree with. So they didn't want to buy like 30-year bonds and stuff, which, um, you know, is more the risk that the big cap insurers are taking. So if you look at the really giant insurers around, uh-huh. the risk they seem to be taking, very willing to take, is to go out much further than I think they should in terms of the, the how long-term their bonds are, instead of buying junk bonds and stuff. Whereas um, something like Gainsco here was basically buying junkier bonds to keep their um, duration short. Which, you know, if you're careful about it and, and whatever, on the one hand, there's much less risk that a, a bond will go to um, create a loss for you if the bond is less than three years and stuff. So, um, and then you don't have the interest rate risk from it. You know, the, the risk that you would have that um, rising rates would cause the prices of your bonds to drop a lot. So they focus very short-term and stuff. That's obviously worked out great for them. That's part of the reason too, that the stock has done well for a while and stuff. Maybe that their investment approach worked fine for this environment, which is they, I think they were a little junkier and a little more short-term than some other companies would be willing to do. Um, and then there are other things. I talked a little bit about it. it um, yeah, that's because they existed in a previous form before the last few years. So their real history only goes back to about 2000, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was 2003 exactly. Yeah, 2002, 2003. 2002 is the last year that they were run completely differently. And then they had new people come in. I've mentioned them before. Um, and local to the area and stuff like that. And they changed the business around from that point on. Um, overall, you can see that someone came in and paid a big premium and stuff to it. It was a 50-50 thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked the business a lot. I thought it had a ton of upside. But without knowing more about management and stuff, I had some real concerns. Because I don't even know if it was mostly legal things and stuff that got their combined ratio down over time. Mm-hmm. I would want to know more about their strategy and stuff. There's not a big description because it's a t- there's no 10Ks and stuff. There's not a big description for the business if they are mainly focused on Spanish-speaking customers. Um, my genuine feeling is that they put up fake reviews, to be honest. They either put up fake reviews or they like force people who signed up with them to give them a good review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't believe their reviews, to be honest. So Now, what led you to that? I read them. Mm-hmm. 
It just and seemed these, like that. Yeah, they weren't real reviews. Mm-hmm. So they might have told people like like you know multi level marketing things do yeah. stuff where you have to go on into Facebook and stuff and and say you know this sort of scripted thing or whatever you know in your own words maybe to a certain extent but basically the mm-hmm. same thing. I, I felt that they had too many reviews for some things and too many positive reviews and stuff. Whereas I could then go to other places that review for like non standard. Yeah, and I could go to other places and then the reviews are more in line with what you'd expect, which is mostly just people complaining. There shouldn't be reviews of people saying how positive their experience was with an insurance company. Yeah. It should be mo- mainly the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it the, even for very good ones. Um, and again, I looked at things that have to do with the actual regulatory filings and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're not worse than other non-standard things. It's really not. So I could compare them. I found a peer group of like six, seven, eight that write a lot of business in Texas, and um, they don't necessarily have more complaints per thousand policyholders than those companies do. Um, those are complaints with the actual regulator and stuff, the Texas regulator. So they may be different than just people not being that happy about it, but they're more in line with other non-standard things. They're not worse. Um, but the reviews weren't and stuff. So something was going on there, which I didn't like. And then there's some related party things and stuff. So actually their business um, did buy a, uh, as they mentioned, uh, like as I think they kind of mentioned, they owned a Hyundai dealership and stuff, which mm-hmm. I think was just because it was a related party thing, basically. Big insider ownership here and long-term ownership by a few people that were involved basically in recapitalizing and stuff a while ago. Um, yeah. So, you know, pretty big business in Dallas and, and Miami, um, like I said, I, you know, it, I think they targeted certain states because of the laws, and I think also because of um, that they wanted to develop a specialty in like Spanish speaking stuff. Again, they never said that, mm-hmm. and so I just felt that by looking at certain things about it, um, that that was part of their way of doing it was focusing on a few states like Florida and Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they they seemed to me to focus on states that had large Spanish speaking populations combined with with looser regulations in terms of minimum standard requirements. So there's some, I noticed there were some high Spanish speaking states that they didn't write a lot of business in. And I figured it's because they have high minimums in those states. But if they had both low minimums and a large Spanish speaking population, they were big in those states. So that was just my guess as to what the strategy was. Um, And, you know, it's a different kind of insured thing. It's a niche thing. It's was much more interesting to me than um, a more typical car insurer. Uh, I like the states that they were in. I kind of like the idea of minimum uh, as a, you know, because it's a certain kind of risk that I kind of prefer that. We've talked a little bit about that before, but if you're going to write kind of a more general risk or a more specific risk, I kind of like the more niche insurers Mm -hmm. generally as opposed to someone who's doing very... um, uh, standard stuff, unless you're doing the standard stuff, you have a huge expense advantage, mm-hmm. you know, and that's Geico progressive and USAA. And I think in auto insurance, other than those three, no one has it. Yeah. And you could see that even in their early years, right? Yeah. So if we look down, there's where I talk about the loss ratio. So all their growth came from, if you keep going, I think you'll find it. Uh, I could find it. Yeah, I'll just... So combined go. ratio is combined of two parts. Uh, you have your expense ratio and your loss ratio and different kinds of insurers will have different levels of those two things. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when you talk to, when I talk about like bank insurance or something, they have an incredibly low loss ratio, which means they're pricing very, very high 
prices versus the risks that they're taking. And you're paying a lot for it because it's a very special risk to be placed that way. And so it has a, there's not a lot of volume of business and stuff. And so it's a lot of it's the expense with auto or like, let's take life insurance Yeah. with life insurance or health insurance or something like that. You should have a very, very low expense ratio and the actual amount of premiums priced over the expected loss is low. In fact, there's legal stuff about that with the um, the Obamacare stuff. So people are expecting. So for instance, like people expect that you shouldn't pay that you should get uh, the company should have a loss ratio of eighty or eighty five percent or whatever on health insurance. But that would be an incredibly high loss ratio to have in certain other businesses where the expense ratio is very low. So if you're you know doing hundreds of policies instead of millions, then you generally have high expense ratio, low loss ratio. Mm-hmm. So with the reverse being for companies that write millions of policies. So if we look, their expense ratio was pretty low a lot of the time. If we go down, um, where do we have it? I can find it. Uh, yeah. Let's go to... Their expense ratio? Yeah. Uh, no, let's go to their loss ratio. So uh, it's the one that starts with 2004. It's right here. Okay, got okay. it. So if you look... The important thing here for this business to me was the loss ratio part of it. So 2004 is when they changed the business. And this is when, but you can see it didn't change dramatically yeah, uh-huh. right away. Yeah. They're, so if we're saying they have a combined ratio of, let's say, like 95% or something, and that's only in recent years they managed to get that low, then the difference between a loss ratio of 69 to 74 or something is the difference between a profit and a loss, basically. There isn't a strong pattern here that I can see until very recently of a very low loss ratio. And this kind of concerned me a little bit. So the loss ratio seemed pretty stable from about 2008 or so to about 2016, 2015, something like that, Yeah, where it was stable in the mid 75% range, plus or minus three mm-hmm. points or something, you know? And so you could model that out. But by the way, if I do the math on that, that's about a hundred percent combined ratio because this company has about a 25% expense ratio. So you're only going to make money on your investment side of things. What dramatically changed is the drop in 2017, 2018. This doesn't sound like that big a deal when I say it this way. It dropped from, they had previously had uh, loss ratios of let's let's say 72 was a common number that hit a lot. So let's pretend 72 is what it was. It then dropped to 64, 65. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound huge, but that's the difference between you're losing money and you're making money basically. Because remember their, their bond yield and stuff is only like 3% and things like that. So we go from seven points per dollar. So seven cents per dollar of premiums is the difference that you have in just a few years. So what changed? And that was the thing that I wondered about. What changed in 2017, 2018? Now, they can say things before. They want to dress it up? Dress up and sell it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it could be, or they could have gotten better about how they write their business. It's not that impossible. Um, you know, you're, all you have to do, so one, pricing just could have gotten better in the industry. Other people could have pulled out or whatever, and you were able to raise your prices. But two, you could have gotten better about how you price your risks. And not necessarily by a lot. As you can see, a one-tenth improvement turns this from a business that's barely profitable into mm-hmm. one that trades a big premium to book. So literally, if you become 10% more effective in pricing your risks, yeah, yeah, and it's a niche business, you know, non-standard stuff, a non-standard auto with the minimum requirements that you have, and if I'm right about there being a focus on Spanish-speaking stuff, and if I'm right that, like, 
half or so of their businesses in a handful of states mm -hmm. in the South, um, there's enough niche stuff there that you could have gotten better at it. So maybe they are meaningfully better at pricing policies than they were 10 years ago. That's why you want to talk to like management and get some idea of what's going on and stuff. And yeah. I was never able to do that. Yeah, we so were. I never got an explanation for why that was. So I didn't know if 2017, 2018, 2019 were unusually good years. And we still don't know that. State Farm will buy them. We'll probably never exactly find yeah, out. Uh -huh. But were those three odd years that way for the really strong years? Or is that new normal for them because they've improved certain things about how they price stuff? Got it. Cool. Well, congratulations to Gaines Cole. Shareholders, that'd have been nice to wake up to, huh? Mm -hmm. It's about a triple. It would have been about a $30 stock, yeah. actually. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, hit that thumbs up button as well. We appreciate all of the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.